There is this bridge between philanthropy and business that cannot be filled by foundation's work. Anxiety is stress in advance. I think we also need to have respect for the fact that development takes time. Hello and welcome to The Purpose Pod. I'm your host, Richard Milan, Head of Impact at Investing for Purpose. We connect impact investors with purposeful companies in need of growth capital. In this podcast, we share personal and professional stories from impact leaders from across the world as we aim for a more equitable and purposeful future in which everybody has the chance to thrive. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ossa Skogstrom-Felt, Managing Director of IKEA Social Entrepreneurship. Ossa, welcome. Thank you. Let's start, Ossa, with a bit about your current role and perhaps a top-line description of what IKEA Social Entrepreneurship does. Yes, I'm leading IKEA Social Entrepreneurship and we are supporting and investing in social enterprises around the world and we have programs, uh, direct investments, co-work engagement and a lot of support for them. Great. Can you tell us a bit about your background, how you came to be where you are now, uh, perhaps even as far back as student days up until arriving at IKEA? I think everything started when I was young and backpacked in uh, Africa. And I thought, hmm, this is a place where there is huge potential. And what can I do to support and enable? Which I couldn't see at that time. So I went on with my studies and I started to work in sales, marketing, management in corporates, in stock exchange companies and also startups. And uh, after a decade or so, I really went back to, hmm, wasn't I going to do something else, something with a bigger purpose? And then I went to the NGO sector and I was leading a global NGO working with ending hunger and poverty. I realized that there is such an interesting space between those two worlds. So the world of social entrepreneurship or social innovation Uh, where I believe we will find so many solutions and can collaborate and facilitate new transformative solutions together. And I guess the chance to have a huge impact at an organization at the scale of IKEA was hard to resist. Absolutely. And can you tell us how IKEA social entrepreneurship evolved and how you work together with IKEA? So it started out some 20 plus years ago. Uh, we created a foundation called IKEA Foundation, working with philanthropy for the most vulnerable, most poor people in and around uh, where we work, but also in other areas. After doing that, uh, we realized that there is this bridge between philanthropy and business that cannot be filled by a a foundation's work, but needs to be addressed in another way. And that's when we said, let's try to partner with social enterprises. We started out in supply, a very tricky thing because of our size, obviously, and many social entrepreneurs are quite small in relationship to our market needs. And then we went on to see, okay, there is the product dimension, there is the service dimension, how can our customers... How can our co-workers partner with social entrepreneurs? And now we're also in the systems change phase. So out of the three major challenges we have in our sustainability strategy, how can we collaborate with change makers 
to find solutions and also include our coworkers to make them look at things in new ways and get maybe new approaches, new ideas, new perspectives, and also a meaningful contribution on top of what they already do. Can you remind our audience of the scale of IKEA's operations uh, globally? Uh, yeah, IKEA is uh, actually a franchise system. Maybe not everyone knows that. There is the part that develops the products, owns the concept and uh, produces through a wide range of suppliers. And then there are the franchisees that run the stores. We have more than 450 stores in more than 60 countries now. And I think in the whole IKEA ecosystem, we are more than 200,000 people working. Yeah, so it's vast. And there's a big footprint question, of course, which brings us to circularity. So I imagine IKEA is, is permanently trying to improve circularity models. Yeah. And also you're so well placed to help spread the knowledge about circularity best practice with your global supply chains and stores, so many touch points around the world. How do you go about that? Yeah, it's a huge topic, obviously, since we work with a lot of materials. The first step for us has been to uh, redesign all the products so the materials are possible to separate, which is step one to be able to reuse, repair, recycle, upcycle your products. So it's a huge endeavor and it goes, of course, all the way to what happens with the secondhand market, what types of services are there? Can we support in either ourselves repairing or having partners that do that? And in that area, of course, we from social entrepreneurship look into what can be the role of social entrepreneurs in that part of the value chain. And actually, we will launch a study really soon about that, which we could also post in the links to this pod. Super, we will. So you talk about partnerships. So, so how do you make them endure and, and flourish over time? In the product dimension, we have had many uh, long relationships. There is, for instance, one social business in India called Rang Sutra that we have partnered with for 10 years now. And they have developed together with us. It's fantastic to see how, how things have evolved and how they have grown and been able to include more women from rural areas of India. But then when we started to do accelerators, there are, of course, some that we work with on, only over a year. And then some of them go on to do other things. And some of them uh, we work with longer, either through investments or other types of partnerships. So for the accelerators, can you just tell us more how that works? So do you have a fund? I mean, how do you go about finding the right NGOs, social enterprises? And, and what are your criteria for investing? First of all, our theory of change is about social impact. We focus on people who are vulnerable. It can be smallholder producers, waste pickers, migrants, refugees, people with different abilities. And we also focus on the livelihood aspect. So that's our wanted impact to have a sustainable livelihood. And of course, income uh, or employment are both important parts of having a sustainable livelihood. So that's our first lens. And then uh, we look for partners in the areas where we want to work. So 
for instance, we have one partner in Indonesia, we have one in Mexico, and there we look at who are the ecosystem intermediaries that are established, that are well-connected to the type of social enterprises to work with. And then we normally do an open call and social enterprises can apply. Uh, We have one open right now, I believe, so always have a look at our website. And then we funnel down to a cohort and it's normally between 10 to 15 social enterprises in one cohort. Okay. And what sort of scale are we talking about? So the overall annual investment and and what what sort of funding do you tend to allocate per enterprise? So per year we support about 100 social enterprises. Last year we were in more than 20 countries and normally we look at where either IKEA is selling, where we are purchasing or where materials come from. Mostly it's about uh, having access to the program. So there is normally not funding in the beginning. We have, for instance, one global accelerator called DELA, which means share, to share in Swedish, uh, where we have three parts. We have the strategy phase, where the social enterprises work with their systems change strategy which might be totally different than growing their organization strategy. And then we have a midterm point with the summit and a dragon's den type of setup. And then they go into looking for pilots that they can test in their new strategy. So if we want to do this, what do we need to test and try? And then they scope out some projects where they get new partners from IKEA and others that can experiment hands-on with what they want to test. And there they can apply for funding for that phase. So this, the, the, the stage at which you are helping enterprises, to, sort of the growth stage, there's a proven concept, you know, there, there's so much potential, but that's the stage that, where so many fail to find funding. Yeah. Our entry point when we looked at where do we add most value? We just don't want to duplicate what someone else is doing. Of course, we found a missing middle or sometimes called the valley of death. I don't think that's a nice way to put it. But uh, of course, there is a phase when you have validated and started uh, to do the impact that you're doing, but you are not big enough to be visible even on the radar of the impact investors. And then it's a small ticket sizes can be, I mean, it can be 50,000 euros that can really make a difference. When we started, we said we want to go in and see what do these social entrepreneurs need and how can we be supportive until they come to a phase where there are plenty of others. So we work with a combination. It can be both programs, co-work engagement, grants, even loans, and then also a few equity investments that we have already done. Not because we want to be an impact investor, but because that's what they need. So, so talking a bit about your fostering innovation, something that we've come across quite a lot is how do you enable the transition of, let's say, an NGO or a charity to becoming a social enterprise, to becoming sustainable and profitable? So from your experience, how do you best kind of support them during that transition? That's a really good question. And I think it uh, comes down to what are the 
funding models. And in the most cases I've seen that are successful, it's a mix of different funding models. So it's not going to be a pure selling something income model. It's probably a combination of different streams of income. And in that transition, it's often useful to keep your uh, non-for-profit while also having a for-profit and work with two types of entities together. So for instance, if you want to capacity build people and upskill and reskill people, sometimes grants are a great resource, both from corporate funders or impact investors or from public uh, investors. So you need to have a receiving body that can accept grants. And then you can work with the capacity building separately and after that work in the for-profit with creating services or products or whatever you are going to, to deliver. There must be so much value in all of this interaction and, and knowledge gain. How do you pull all of that knowledge and make it available to the, to the world to benefit from? Yeah, we have a monitoring, evaluation and learning specialist in our team. That was actually one of the first that we employed because we wanted to make sure that uh, we had our own theory of change in place, but also that when we start new partnerships that we develop a joint theory of change, first of all, and that we co-create the interactions. And then, of course, make sure to follow up, so to monitor the uh, indicators, but also do evaluations now and then. And of course, in social impact, it's not ones or zeros it's also experiences and personal developments that are engaged so on top of having indicators we also have what we call outcome stories where we interview so how was it before and how is it now to see where has the development happened Mm, that's really nice because i was going to come on to the impact measurement and management aspect but also theory of change just for our audience can you remind them sort of what that is and how important it is for any organization to connect their activities with with impact i think theory of change is a really useful tool not only for development but for most things actually in life even Uh, but it's about defining what are the challenges that we would like to address So uh, in our case, people far away from the labor market or with low income. And then you make some assumptions. For instance, if we support these social enterprises so they can educate people in uh, farming better, their income will increase and they will earn more. So those are some assumptions. And then based on that, you draw up your big impact and you can work your way backwards and end up in what are the activities that side by side can lead to the outputs, which is the immediate uh, output of the activity. For instance, I learned how to work with my finances. And then the outcome would be how do I take this knowledge and improve something? And then you can have short-term outcome and a long-term outcome. And of course, at the horizon, you have the impact. And do you connect your impact goals with the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals, like many others? 
Yes, our wanted uh, impact uh, is connected to five or six of the SDGs even, depending on which program we run. But it's a lot about reducing poverty, obviously, uh, but there is also uh, inclusive employment, which is part of one SDG, and several others. And many social entrepreneurs that we work with, although we focus on the social side, they also work a lot on the environment or the climate side, for instance. That, of course, also contributes to a circular world. So you mentioned, mentioned earlier the, that sort of qualitative way that you measure some of the social returns um, for the enterprises by interviewing and getting, getting feedback from people directly. I wanted to ask you about um, impact measurement and management generally uh, mm. for this sector, because I guess there's a balance between you know, getting very accurate figures that can justify the investments and also what's feasible in terms of time and resource, the cost of getting that research done and so on. So how do you find a balance? Uh, it's an excellent question because you sometimes could potentially spend more money on the M&E than doing the work itself. So, of course, it's a balance. I think you need to work with samples. You cannot measure everything. You need to follow through over a long period of time, especially if you work with social change. Uh, and maybe wait a couple of years. Immediately you will not see any movement anyway. So maybe it's enough if you do uh, external evaluations every five years. And some topics or like mindset change might even be decades or generations. So I think we also need to have respect for the fact that development takes time. But one thing that I bring from my time at, at the NGO, if you work with people development, uh, it's great to have the people themselves working on what are the indicators and doing the follow-up because it's their dashboard, not our dashboard. That makes so much sense. It, it's already embedded in the way that they're operating. Um, yeah. Another way, by the way, that your, your time frames, you mentioned t- two years, five years, ten years for reporting. So often we're grappling with reporting in line with financial reporting, which is quarterly, which makes no sense for impact, even biannually, yeah. uh, depending on the specific enterprise, of course. But anyway, let, let's think in five-year time frames. <laughs> At least. Yeah. <laughs> At the moment, what keeps you awake at night, if anything? <laughs> Probably like most other people, the state of the world is really at a tough uh, place. It's like a multitude of challenges, multiple waves of, uh, I would say, hardship and new realities that we haven't seen for quite a while, at least our generation. And I am a bit concerned about democracy and speaking up so that is probably what keeps me awake so how can we engage everybody in creating a shared vision for the future instead of either being part of the polarizing or not being part of it at all heard i would hope at least a couple of billion people feel the same way Um, on the flip side what gives you the most joy in life well, I say, always say I have the best job and I have the best colleagues, which is also super important. Just because you work with challenging topics doesn't mean that you have to be serious uh, and uh, 
depressed uh, when you work. So I really appreciate to having a fantastic team that challenge how we work and why we do it, uh, but also contributes with so much new thinking and keeps us moving forward. Yeah, and I guess on that note as well. So any tips for uh, maintaining that healthy sort of life balance in, in an age of, you know, climate anxiety and all the rest of it? Any tips? You were talking about your, your shots earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Always have a ginger shot for breakfast. Okay. Perfect. No, more seriously, maybe uh, I listen to these scientists who do research on uh, the brain and our behavior. And he talked a lot about stress, which he calls it's the whisper from our ancestors because our body is reacting to signals that is trying to interpret based on our many thousands years of existence. And anxiety is stress in advance. So it's that we anticipate that something might happen. And it's not a very useful state of mind in our age. It was back then if there was a lion on the savannah that might attack you. But nowadays it's not a useful state of mind. So by addressing why we feel it, we might also be able to take it down a little bit. For me, taking some action every day that I feel contributes to how I want the future to be makes me more content. And if I can wake up tomorrow again and say, well, today I'm going to do this little action, uh, that really helps me to stay out of anxiety. It's about all of us taking step-by-step actions each and every day. I really like that. So it's, it's almost like listening to that, that signal to do something, yes. to, to be proactive, uh, to address it. Back to the big picture. From your collective experience of IKEA social entrepreneurship and your experience, so what, what are the big takeaways for how other global enterprises can use their power to, to leverage impact for those in most need? Yeah, we work in many ways, both in the business and in the supply and with our suppliers. Uh, And then, of course, with the foundation where we donate a lot of money to climate and people. And what we do in IKEA social entrepreneurship that is in between those two worlds to try to bridge philanthropy and business and and find social innovations. And that's the way we have set it up because we are such a big corporate. But You don't have to uh, silo it like we have done. You can look into what are the most pressing issues around us and what do we want to contribute to transform, be it climate, which we all have to contribute to, be it the growing inequalities, be it not so healthy living, challenges with education for the future. You know where, where you want to be part of the solution and also your co-workers will know where there are pressing issues that you can contribute to. This message of um, trying to change the thinking around profit, let's say, and trying to change it, shift the dial a bit towards social return on investment alongside financial return on investment. Does your belonging to the IKEA sort of family enable you to push that message throughout the franchises it must be quite a delicate balance of knowing how how and when to actually try to to use that power I suppose to send some of these messages and accelerate the transition yeah and I think when it comes to corporate of course you need to 
start with what is material for you as a business? So where are the positive impacts and the possible negative impacts, if any, or at least risks? And then you also combine that with commitments that you make. So how inclusive do we want to be, for instance? And what type of employer do we want to be? And how do we work with everyone's talent going forward? On the subject of scale and the topic of slow growth or degrowth, what position do you take on that debate? I think it's about becoming circular and making sure that we have the right quality that it's possible to reuse, repair, upcycle and so forth. I think for me personally, it can be challenging to talk about growth, but then we tend to forget that we still have a lot of people in the world who don't have access to a lot of things. So there is definitely opportunity for growth, but probably redistributed. Everyone should have a healthy, sustainable house and life and access to services for your health, for your children, for education and a place to call home. And it should not be a luxury for the few to live sustainably either. One of the things I love about the impact sector is just the huge range of backgrounds that people come to the sector from, from all kinds of backgrounds and, and experiences and skill sets and so on. How would you describe the, the impact community as far as you've, you've, you've experienced so far? Well, I think it's a very interesting space that keeps evolving. Uh, it's great to see how the civil society, the corporate, the public sector are coming closer and closer together, partly thanks to the impact ecosystem, because it ties in all the actors that are needed for each solution. So it's like a lab for all of us to join in and contribute and learn, most importantly, I think. What advice do you have for either students looking to work in the impact sector or people looking to change careers to find a more purposeful career, perhaps? That's a, a great question, and I ask myself probably around every decade, so what's the purpose of my life now? Because when I was a student, I was trying to find what is the thing I want to do in my life. And I could never find one thing. So instead, I went on curiosity. And I love to meet people and understand about how do you live, what's important for you, and get other perspectives. So I went that track and into business. And as you heard before, I then changed all the way to the NGO sector. So... Find what's important for you now, and most likely it will change a couple of times in your life. And that's not bad, because at the end you will be able to use all the experience you have uh, achieved in whatever you are going to take on. So listen to your mind, but also to your heart and to your soul. That's lovely. And I suppose it'll probably end up being a series of chapters, uh, particularly nowadays, as opposed to one career choice. Yes. On that note, I think we're in a great place to wrap up. Also, thank you so much for taking part. Thank you for having me. Thank you to everyone for listening. For more about Osa and IKEA Social Entrepreneurship, please see the show notes below with everything that Osa mentioned as well. And if you're enjoying the Purpose Pod, please like, subscribe and share. If you have any comments or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear covered, please email me, richard at investing-for-purpose.com. 
and we'll look forward to welcoming you again next time. Meanwhile, as ever, we'll leave you with a final word from our guest. Stay mindful and be purposeful. Thank you.